If you're visiting with us this morning, we begin a new study in the book of Esther this morning. We preach through whole books of the Bible, believing that that is the clearest way to see the glory of God revealed. The book of Esther is about the glory of God. Esther is about the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our transcendently majestic God. The book of Esther is deeply theological. It not only describes God's spectacular deliverance of his people from complete annihilation, it also presents two opposing views of the world and how it works. Esther offers a striking contrast between a kingdom ruled by a a self-referenced king who is insecure, who's dependent, and who's vengeful. He rules a kingdom that is rich and beautiful, but superficial and cold, exceedingly oppressive, and utterly perverse. This kingdom is contrasted with a kingdom ruled by one who is attentive to his people's needs and rules with a strength and a steadfast love, a holy righteous king who loves and protects and preserves his people against all who oppose him. There's just one problem. This all-powerful and glorious king, the one true and living God, this ultimate deliverer, the hero of this gripping story, isn't mentioned in the book at all. Not once. Not a single time. Is this a book of the Bible? Without God? What do we do with this? How do we handle how do we handle that tension? Is there a way to address this dilemma? How do we resolve this apparent problem? The answer to the question begins with our own experience, even today even now. Despite the fact that the events chronicled in Esther occurred about 475 years before Jesus was born, and despite the fact that the story takes place in in ancient Persia, a, a land that is very, very different than our own, the experience of the people of God in that time is very similar to our experience today. In Persia, the people of God were living in a, in, a, in a wealthy land full of glitz and glamour, but it had a dark underbelly, a land where many were hostile to the things of God. In the book of Esther, God acts in, in subtle but powerful ways to provide for his people in the midst of their circumstances, despite the fact that his presence isn't always obvious to them. 
Does that sound familiar to you? Does that spiritual reality resonate with the way that God often moves among us and perhaps in your life in particular? Somewhat ironically, the power, the power of the book of Esther, despite its lack of mention of God, the power of the book of Esther is found in what it clearly reveals about God. Esther shows us that God is always trustworthy. And God is always working for the good of his people, even when we don't see it. Even when there is no direct evidence of his hand at work in our lives. But if you're able to see that, if you're able to see that, then our time in Esther will be deeply encouraging for you. We will begin our study this morning with the first nine verses of the book. Hear then the word of our glorious God, beginning in Esther chapter 1 and verse 1. Now in the days of Ashawaris, the Ashawaris who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ashawaris sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ashuerus. So Lord... Lead us now and reveal your glory as we talk through the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we had one banner to fly over the book of Esther, or if there was one overarching point, we could summarize it like this. Even when God's providence is veiled, he is a very present help. Even when God's providence is veiled, he is a very present help. 
We may not always see God's hand at work in our lives because his sovereignty is often exercised very subtly. But we know from Psalm 46 and verse 1 that God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in the time of trouble. Even though we may not always be able to see how God is helping us, we can rest in the promise of Jesus himself. I will be with you. Always. To the very end of the age. So I have two goals this morning. First, I want to talk about how the story of Esther is told. And my aim there is that I think that will help us appreciate or comprehend Esther as clearly as possible. So I'll offer some thoughts there. Second, I want to look a little bit more closely at the first nine verses and do a little bit of compare and contrast of ancient Persia with the kingdom of our glorious God. So let's begin with some thoughts on how the story of Esther is conveyed. If I asked you to name an Old Testament book that had had very colorful characters that dealt with a very dark time in the history of Israel, that it was a book that, that dealt with, with just gross sins and offered great deliverance, what book would come to mind for you? I think many of us might guess the book of Judges. I mean, it certainly checks all of the boxes that I just mentioned. But I would submit to you this morning that the book of Esther contains just as colorful of an array of characters as that book. This book deals with some some dark sins, even if it handles those sins a little bit more subtly. And we'll, we'll talk through those as we progress through the book. And Esther's central theme is about a great deliverance. Esther is told so well that, that I just want to make some observations that I, that I think will help us to read it well also. So first, let's look at the use of time by the author. This is a, a really simple, but it's an important idea. It's, it's one that would be really easy to miss. Writers often use the passage of time as, as a way to, to key in the reader to what's important. I mean, just think about uh, the way the four Gospels are written. One person has joked that, that the four Gospels really are just a summary of the last week of Jesus with, with very, very long introductions attached to the front of them. John's, John's Gospel is a very good example of this. He takes the first 11 chapters to cover almost three years of Jesus' ministry. And then he spends the last 10 chapters on essentially the last week of Jesus' life. The point is that John John is slowing us down. He's keying us in. He wants us to see what is most important, namely the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, in Esther, chapter 1 opens in the third year of the king's reign. In chapter 
2, we are in the seventh year of his reign. In chapter 3, we are in the twelfth year of his reign. So if you're counting, that's nine years in just the first three chapters. And then as we get into the heart of the book, in chapters 5 through 7, they unfold over a total of just two days. The point is, the author of the book is slowing us down. He wants us to see what is most important. Now, let's take some time to consider just the, the, the literary artistry of this book. It is one of the most well-written and most beautifully written books in all of the Bible. So just think for a moment about a book or a movie or even a TV show that you just absolutely love. And think for a moment about why that is. Why do you love that book or that movie or that show so much? Is it the character development? Is it, the, is it the brilliant but somewhat subtle way that the, that the author of the, or the publisher or the editor of the show makes the main points of it with, with, with just indirect references? Or maybe the premise of the show or the book is, is just really dramatic, and so it's super compelling to you. Or maybe you're a fan of great plot twists. And so that book or that movie or that show just has it. I'd submit to you that Esther contains all these elements, which is why it is such an interesting book to read. But one of the things that I love that the author does is the way simple coincidences or just matter-of-fact details are presented that make an overarching point that, that becomes just stunningly clear to us. Brian Gregory says, In Esther, the sheer number of coincidences and the way they become increasingly frequent and incredible as the story progresses eventually leave the reader with the unmistakable impression that something more is going on. And this gives us a clue to how the glory of God is revealed very, very clearly in the book of Esther. Gregory summarizes the details well. The story begins with the Persian queen's timely dismissal, which opens the door for Esther's ascent. When a search is begun for a new queen, it just so happens that Esther is brought in for the competition. It just so happens that she wins the favor of the man in charge of the competition. And it just so happens that she finds favor in the eyes of the king and wins the competition. Now, we'll talk about the grossness of this competition in coming weeks. But for now, just note what has to happen in order for Esther just to be in the place that she is. Once queen, it just so happens that Mordecai, who's her relative and, and essentially serves as her parental guardian, he's working in the king's gate, and it just so happens that he overhears an assassination plot against the king. 
So after he comes to the king and makes it known, it just so happens that his name is recorded in the king's book of memorable deeds. Now, if that doesn't sound like the title of a movie, I don't know what does. The king's book of memorable deeds, mostly about the greatness of the king. (laughs) Now, later when Haman, who is the villain in our story, later when he becomes angry at Mordecai, he is so furious that he wants to not only kill Mordecai, but but destroy his entire people. Uh, We'll talk more about that fascinating detail when we get there in the weeks to come. But for now, it just so happens that the law that is cast for the best day to destroy the covenant people of God when a king's edict is going to be put in place, that lot falls on a particular day, which just happens to be out a year or so, like 11 months, which is the only reason the events in Esther can even take place. Such is the subtle sovereignty of our glorious God. When Esther goes to the king, it just so happens that he receives her rather than rejects her. Literally, her life was in the king's hand. When she defers her request until the next day, it just so happens that Haman crosses paths with Mordecai again and becomes so angry that he decides to execute him immediately. He can't wait 11 months. He must die now, tonight. When the builders construct the gallows through the night, it just so happens that Haman decides he can't even wait for the night to be over. So he goes in the middle of the night to seek the king's permission to kill Mordecai. Meanwhile, it just so happens that the king can't sleep that night. It just so happens that he asks to have the book of memorable deeds brought in to be read to him. And it just so happens that the reader opens to the place in the book where Mordecai's good deed of telling the king of the assassination attempt is recorded. Immediately after learning that Mordecai was never rewarded for this good deed, which is a huge deal for a Persian king because they want people to be loyal to them. So they reward loyalty to the king. They reward good behavior. In this case, he foiled an assassination attempt and nothing was ever done to honor Mordecai. The king finds out about it and it just so happens that Haman enters the room at that exact time. It just so happens that the king doesn't mention Mordecai's name when Haman walks in as they begin talking about who it is, a man that the king wants to bestow honor upon. So Haman assumes, who else could the king want to honor but me? What happens is that the king wants to honor Mordecai and not Haman. So after the humiliation of having to honor Mordecai, instead of executing him, which was the plan for the evening, Haman goes to Esther's banquet and is exposed as the one trying to kill Esther's people. When the king finds out about this, he becomes exceedingly angry. Haman knows that his life is in the king's hand. And so he goes over to Esther, who's reclining on a couch 
to plead for his life, but it just so happens that he falls onto Esther on the couch. And it just so happens that the king comes in from the garden at that very moment and enters the room and thinks that Haman now is assaulting Esther on the couch in front of the king. So he's absolutely enraged. And a man standing near just so happens to mention to the king, hey, there's a newly built gallows right there. Haman had made that gallows so he could hang or impale Mordecai. But now, it's an easy way to execute Haman. So the king says, hang him on that. At some point during the series of events, it becomes clear that it is impossible for this sequence of events to unfold unless God was orchestrating them to save his people. This is the subtle sovereignty of God on full display. He is a very present help in the time of trouble. Have you ever done that, though? Have you ever taken time to think about the way that God has worked in your own life to deliver you in a time of trouble? One of the things that Jeff Berkowitz, who's the chairman of the board of elders, says to us as elders often is remember. Remember, remember, remember. If you know Jeff, he's probably said the same thing to you. Because Jeff knows that unless we take time to specifically reflect on what God has done in our lives, it's easy to forget the details about the way that God has provided for us time and time again. So when you go out to lunch today as families or uh, in, in growth group this week, take some time together to specifically reflect on how God has provided for you and for your family and for this church. And then take time to exult in God together for the greatness of his provision. So in addition to the use of time and the sheer number of coincidental details, because remember, what we're doing is thinking about how this story is told. In addition to those two ways of telling the story, there are other ways that the author helps us to realize that God's hand, veiled or not, is, is actively working among his people. As you read through Esther, keep your eyes open for sudden turn of events. We might call them great reversals or plot twists, if you like. There are several examples, like Haman's glory to disgrace interactions with Mordecai, Esther's acceptance by the king when she could have been rejected, the whole, the whole gallows switcheroo scenario, right? Most importantly, the people of God went from almost certain annihilation by the most powerful king's edict in all of the land at the time to completely victorious because of a series of coincidences that just so happened to deliver the people of God.
Now, another subtle but kind of fascinating characteristic of the book, which would, which would be really easy to overlook in the beginning, is what's, what's called a third-person omniscient point of view within the narration. Now, it basically means that we're given insight into someone's perspective, what they're thinking, what's going on in their heart, what's happening as the story unfolds. And the detail is so helpful. It, it kind of reminds me when I'm sitting in the movie theater and I'm watching a, a superhero movie and my son Max or my son Luke will lean over and say, this is why that's important. <laughs> this is who that character is. This is why the people in the theater are actually applauding. And I'll say, oh, gotcha. As we go through the story of Esther, this, this third-person omniscient point of view in the narration, it's written as if the Holy Spirit is sitting next to you in the movie theater. And he's just kind of whispering to you, this is what Haman said in his heart. This is how Esther found favor with the king. This is how the plot became known to Mordecai. And so as you read along, those insights are helpful and will make you say, oh, gotcha. Now, the final significant storytelling characteristic of Esther is actually found in her name. Esther is the main protagonist in the story. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah which means myrtle. The myrtle tree is used by the prophets as a type of, of a symbol of, of blessing or of peace or of favor with God, especially after a time of judgment. In, in context here, think about it after the exile. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Isaiah 53 and verse 13. At a time when some Jews, the people of God, were living in and among the Persians, the name Hadassah, or the symbolism of a myrtle tree, is a reminder for the Jew that God has not forgotten them that the Lord is faithful to all of his promises. But it gets even more interesting than that. Hadassah's Persian name is Esther, which means, which means star. But when Esther's Persian name is pronounced or, or spoken in Hebrew... It sounds like the Hebrew phrase for, I am hiding, or I am hidden. Esther's own name, then, is a star, a light shining in the darkness. In a sense, her name introduces the theme of concealment in the book and implies a day when, when hidden things will be revealed. As we shall see, Esther concealed her Jewish identity. It remained hidden for a time. She concealed or hid her intentions at the banquet that she put on for the king and for Haman. And God's own hidden providence, his subtle sovereignty, 
is veiled throughout the book of Esther. But Esther's identity and her intentions and ultimately God's glory are all clearly revealed in this just absolutely fascinating book. Now, let's, let's turn our attention to the king and to his kingdom. Now, in the days of Ashawaris, that is, the Ashawaris who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ashawaris sat on his throne in Susa the citadel in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So Ashuerus is Xerxes I, or King Xerxes I, who ruled the Persian Empire from about 486 BC to 465. And what we learn about the king in Esther fits what the historians say about him. He was self-referenced. He loved women. He was exceedingly powerful. And all of his weaknesses are on full display. He ruled 127 provinces, stretching from India in the east to the upper Nile region in the west. Even if you don't have all of that held in your mind geographically, that is an enormous, enormous kingdom. The Persian Empire was so vast, it had four capital cities. One of these capitals was Susa. It was a city set in a, in a, in a fertile plain about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf, kind of right on the border of modern-day Iraq and Iran. Now, the focal point of the city would have been the royal palace or the citadel, which is, which is basically a fortress, set high on a, on a massive mound or a, or a massive hill on the west side of the city. The king probably lived there in winter and spring because in the summer it would have been unbearably hot, which is one of the reasons why they built these garden porticos so that the breeze could flow through the palace or the fortress, offering at least some relief for those that lived there. And this is the setting of the six-month-long show of wealth, that is, this party that opens the book. Just listen to the description and think, what conclusion are we supposed to come to? There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a, on a mosaic pavement of porphyry. And that was like a, a red stone. It was exceedingly rare and very difficult to find. Marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. 
So, yes, this is exactly what it sounds like. It's basically a royal frat party. That's what's going on, and it's not pretty. So here's an example of a Persian goblet and of Persian tableware. Uh, when, when verse 7 says the drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, it means that every single one of them was custom made by an artisan. Just think about it. We, we might have in our mind picture this ancient goblet looking thing, which looks kind of crude. Look at the beauty and the design. This description is designed for us to say, wow, dude was rich. Wealth was everywhere. This is incredibly, incredibly impressive. This is also where the gross underbelly of this kind of glitzy and supposedly glorious picture begins to get exposed. It kind of reminds me of something like Hollywood. You see famous actors and actresses and you're supposed to be in awe. But there's a dark side. There's, there's a moral bankruptcy that's on full display with all the red carpets and the pictures and the parties and the self-congratulation. It's, it's a lot like the kingdom of Asherah's. There, there's a superficiality to it all that just feels desperate and, and, and devilish. And we'll see that this is exactly right. This holds true beginning next week with Queen Vashti, who, who appears at the very end of our section as the, as the curtain closes on our opening scene. So there's only really one more question to ask. One more thing that we need to think about by way of introduction to the book of Esther. We know that all, all books of the Bible ultimately point to Jesus. He's the one who told us that. And that includes Esther. But how is that possible? How is that possible if, if God isn't even mentioned in this book? How do we get to Jesus from here? Esther sits at the very end of the historical books. This might be easiest to see if you just kind of go to the very beginning of your Bible and maybe just go, I don't know, two or three pages in and look at the table of contents. Just keep your finger there for a few minutes where you can see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the rest of the historical books that end with Esther before the wisdom books pick up with Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, etc. The point is, the history of the people of God is, is laid out right here. So when we think of the concept of progressive revelation, we tend to think of the unveiling of the plan of God to bring about salvation through the life and death and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that's 100% true. That's exactly what progressive revelation is. But something that we don't often consider 
is that this revealing of God's glory in many ways follows a deeper concealing of God's glory as we progress through the Old Testament. So here's what I mean. The Old Testament moves from God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, is very present with them, to Abraham. And with Abraham, God actually appears to him in dreams. So God's just slightly more removed. God is present through the Exodus, and if you're thinking about Exodus, you know there are very powerful manifestations of the presence of God. There's fire, there's the Shekinah glory cloud, and there are epic miracles in the book of Exodus. For example, the parting of the Red Sea. But when God appears at Sinai, after the wilderness wanderings, the people are so terrified of God they basically ask Moses, please don't let God speak directly to us anymore. From this point on, prophets serve as intermediaries between the people and God. And the presence of God begins to subtly fade into the background There are no more dramatic, visible manifestations, and the miracles in the Old Testament actually become much more sporadic. By the end of 2 Samuel, there are hardly any miracles. And look where we are about halfway through this historical narrative timeline. Samuel is the last person that it is said it is to him that God was revealed. Solomon is the last person to whom God is said to have appeared. Elijah is the last person through whom God does a public miracle. You remember when he brought down fire at Mount Carmel, which was an awesome miracle. But in 1 Kings 19, God no longer speaks with with thunder and earthquakes, but with a whisper, a still, small voice. This is the last time that the text specifically says that the Lord said anything to anyone directly. About 100 years later, when when Hezekiah asked for the shadow on the steps to, to back up, this is the last miracle in the Old Testament narrative. The last example of an angel working on the earth, so not just not the presence of God, but now not even the presence or activity of angels. The last example of an angel working on the earth happens shortly thereafter when when the Assyrian troops are routed. Angels only appear in visions and dreams after this. The temple, which is the visible reminder of God's presence, stands until it is destroyed by the Babylonians. And Ezekiel tragically notes that the glory has departed. Ezekiel 10 and verse 18. Almost to the end. After the exile, that is in Ezra 
and Nehemiah, when the people go back to rebuild the temple, there are no miracles, there are no angels, and there are no divine manifestations. Which brings us to Esther. It brings us to Esther, where there is no mention of God anywhere at all. Esther and the people of God living in this superficial, godless kingdom where God is not even mentioned. It's a a type of culmination point for the hiddenness of God because God's glory is nearly fully concealed among his people at this point. Malachi is written about this time, which is why we are reading through the book of Malachi while we're preaching through the book of Esther. And then after Malachi there are 430 years of absolute prophetic silence from God to his people. The night is darkest, though, before the dawn. When it seems that all hope is lost for the people of God, a star And Esther, if you will, appears in the sky above a lowly stable. A baby is born there, and a voice begins crying out in the wilderness, make a straight path for the Lord. And here the world is introduced to a new king and a different kind of kingdom. For now... For now, it's a relatively inconspicuous type of kingdom. This kingdom starts like a, like a tiny little mustard seed, utterly unimpressive. But it will grow, and the gates of hell shall not stand against it. The conspicuous but superficial kingdom of Xerxes I of Ashawaris causes us to long for a better kingdom, a greater king. Xerxes' kingdom will, like all other kingdoms, eventually fall, and it will bow. The king in that kingdom and all its wealth will be brought into the much greater kingdom of a much greater king so that they will experience the joy of all of the glory of all nations and kingdoms. In Jesus... The glory of God is both concealed and revealed. It's concealed because the king of glory was walking around on this earth and almost no one recognized him. How is that even possible? How is it possible that God could walk on earth and do extraordinary miracles and yet no one knew who he was? And the glory of God is perfectly revealed in Jesus. Hebrews 1.3. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. A perfect representation of who God is. And that's because Jesus himself is God. There are, there are glimpses of Jesus' glory 
as in the, as in the transfiguration. When he goes up on the mountain, it's like, it's like the light, the glory can no longer be contained. And it, just, it just needs to get out for a second. It just needs to burst forth to radiate from his being. But it's ever so briefly. There are glimpses of Jesus' glory, but the glory of his crown is concealed, at least initially. So the glory of his cross can first be revealed. Jesus is a king who first laid down his life so that his people could be redeemed from their bondage to sin, so they could be freed to follow him to glory. Now, there will be many ways that the glory of Jesus will be revealed in Esther. These are all pointing forward to the appearing of the Son of God, when the presence and power of God would be restored and when the promises of God would be ultimately fulfilled. When Jesus appears, the blind begin to see. When Jesus appears, the deaf begin to hear and the lame start leaping for joy. When Jesus appears, water turns to wine, and the people of God are fed by the thousands, even the tens of thousands, and countless souls are raised from the dead to new life. With the appearing of Jesus, all of the promises of God find their amen in him. Hope has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ demonstrating he is a very present help in the time of trouble, which causes us to say, oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Think about the plan throughout all of history. Think about the contribution of Esther to the revelation of who Jesus Christ is and the salvation found in his name. Brothers and sisters, I trust that the Spirit has has increased your appetite to feed on Esther over the next few weeks. But for now, we're just going to have to kind of spiritually drool together. (laughs) Even as we worship our King, who has finally come to reveal the glory of God fully and forever. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Praise be to the Father and to his blessed Son and to the most Holy Spirit of God. Let's pray. Lord, would you, would you cause our hearts to overflow with tremendous joy as we just stand in awe of the way that you have worked throughout history to bring salvation to your people through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, Son, and Spirit, we worship you as the one and only true and living God, and we do so with great thankfulness and tremendous joy. So lead us as we sing now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.